Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who enjoyed a 14-year career in the majors where he batted 250, 99 home runs. He played over 1,200 games in the majors, the majority of them with the Houston Astros, as well as the Montreal Expos, Tampa Bay Devil Rays, San Diego Padres, Chicago White Sox, Arizona Diamondbacks. Maybe one of his greatest moments in the majors came at the expense of the Astros as during his stint with the White Sox during the 2005 season, he faced the Astros in Houston's first ever World Series. Coming off the bench, he came up in a pinch-hitting role in the 14th inning of Game 3, where he drilled a home run over the right-field fence for the game winner. He returns for his eighth season with the Astros TV broadcast team in 2020, his fourth as the everyday color analyst for Astros telecast. It is a thrill to welcome Jeff Blum to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jeff. Great to be on. If I knew that that intro was going to be as good as it was, I would have called in a long time ago. (laughs) So, you know, and it's interesting. You know, I wonder what we could possibly talk about, you know, the beginning of spring training about the Astros. I mean, really. But before we talk about the Astros, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about your career. Prior to high school, you had a pretty good Little League teammate for about 12 years in Mike Sweeney, (laughs) who played 16 years in the majors. Both of your dads actually coached together. I'm wondering, did you guys ever lose a game? Well, yes, we did, amazingly enough. But we always blamed it on the uh, Little League role where you had to play everybody on the team. (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I mean, yeah, we were human. You know, uh, Mikey couldn't throw every inning, and I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't hit every at-bat. So, I mean, you you rely on the team, but we were very good. We didn't lose too many. When we did, it was kind of a shock to us, but we did pretty well when we were young, yeah. We also, oddly enough, we had Brian Roach and uh, John Jacobs on those teams, too, and both those guys played at least a year in the NFL, too. Wow, that's a pretty good athletic team for sure. Um, so after an outstanding uh, senior year at Highs High School for the Chino Cowboys, you drafted, uh, you batted 489, leading the team in hits, doubles, triples, RBIs, drawing the attention of college scouts. You chose to part, uh, accept a partial scholarship to UC of Berkeley. What went into that choice, and what were some of the other options you had on the table, and why UC Berkeley? Um, you know, well, I, I had options in Southern California. Cal State Fullerton was a team was a team that was or a college that was actually uh, scouting pretty good, and I was getting scouted as far as uh, you know minor league baseball. But at the time, I was about six foot three and weighed about a buck sixty, and I knew that physically I wasn't going to be able to uh, handle a full season of professional baseball, and I don't think mentally and emotionally I was ready either. But I was also enticed by the fact that uh, my baseball skills were going to give me an opportunity to go to a school like Cal and, you know, have the, my, you know, have my backup plan be a degree from the University of California was uh, highly appealing to me at the time. But I don't know why I was that wise at that time, but I made the right choice and going to school is one of the best things for me. And I, I love telling people that I went to Cal and eventually became a professional baseball player because I think in my position now, I probably wouldn't have such a great job after baseball if it wasn't for those years I had at Cal. 
your coach there was a, a legend, and Bob Milano, who retired after the 99 yes. season with the most career victories, 688 in the program's history. He became only the fourth person in Cal baseball history to have his jersey retired. He was named Pac-10 Coach of the Year twice, and uh, he mentored 12 All-Americans. What did you take away from your time with Coach Milano? He was the perfect matchup for me and kind of filled a couple of roles. He was a great coach, but he was also that father figure in the sense that he helped me mature a little bit and understand what it meant to become a, a scholar athlete, taking care of my grades and making enough time to go out there and practice and become a good ball player. But at the same time, he was an incredible judge of character and talent because my freshman year, he uh, implored me to go and switch hit and literally threatened to take away my scholarship if I didn't hit left-handed. And, you know, to this day, I thank him every time I see him because if I hadn't learned how to switch hit, I wouldn't have had the career or the opportunities that I've had moving forward. That, that's why, I mean, that's kind of scary. <laughs> I, I can't even yeah. imagine, like, someone saying, listen, uh, and... It's like those stories you hear of dad's tying the, the right, right hand behind right. their arms, yeah. you know, they want to throw them lefties. Wow. See, except this is at a much higher level. So how yeah. hard was it? as a college kid to, to, to try and do this? It was, it was incredibly hard. And, you know, the comparison of Division One baseball to professional baseball is around the double-A level. So you're seeing some pretty good talent. And, you know, it was incredibly frustrating because the reason I ended up in his office was after about 50, 60 at-bats of hitting left-handed where I hadn't gotten a hit. I was literally 0 for 50. And, you know, the team was kind of getting the sense that I was getting frustrated I was a guaranteed out every time I stepped up to the box and I walked in his office. I said, Hey, man, I'm getting frustrated. I go, Not only for me, but I go, My teammates are picking up my glove every time I go into the box because they know I'm going to end the inning. And I go, I can't, I'm having a hard time with this. And he kind of gave me the ultimatum and said, You're going to keep working hard at it. I believe in you. And, you know, here we are 14, 15 years in the big leagues and a pretty big home run left handed in my career. Yeah, it's also, I have to imagine, you know, you talk about guys, whether it be hockey or baseball in the minor leagues, you know, you're trying to get to that next level. Obviously, in college, you're trying to get, you know, drafted by a team. Now you're going up there, something that's totally foreign, learning it on the fly against really good competition and devaluing yourself as, you know, when scouts are mm -hmm. there. That, that's got to, that, I don't know how you deal with that pressure, but <laughs> it obviously did work. You drafted by the Montreal Expos in the seventh round of the 94 amateur draft. Uh, what do you remember about draft day? And, you know, had other teams contacted you? Did you have an inkling that you were going to be picked by a, a team? Yes, I, I, there were plenty of scouts at the games, and you know, being lucky enough to play in the Pac, you know, the Pac-12 conference and playing Division One, you get a lot of exposure because the opposing team usually has some pretty good talent on it too. So there were plenty of scouts in the stands, and you have contact, you you, you take all the litmus tests, you have conversations, and you know, of course, you get the conversation from everybody. Oh, you're going to be picked in the first ten rounds, you know, and that you know that's one of what 200 picks almost, 300 picks nowadays. And uh, so you have an idea that you're going to have the opportunity, but uh, you know, back in back when I got drafted, you know, we didn't have cell phones, and the first day went by, and I think they went through uh, three or four rounds in the first day. So I didn't get I didn't get the phone call. The next day, I actually went to you know typical mall rat nineteen early nineteen nineties fashion. I went to uh, the mall with some friends, and we came back, and there was a message from. Uh, uh, who is it? Uh, Bill Stoneman from the Montreal Expo saying that I, I had been drafted in the seventh round. So it was pretty cool to come home and realize that you had a, a ticket to go try and chase down that dream. 
And part of chasing down that dream is you spent time with the Expos organization. In the winter of 95, they sent you to the Australian Baseball League with the Hunter Eagles. You, were in a one, uh, you won a gold glove there. But what was your experience like in playing in that league? A-plus on your homework. You guys have done an outstanding job. I've got to give you that. Right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, going to Australia was amazing. I had no idea what we were in for. And, you know, it, you, hear, you hear great things about Australia, and then you get there, and it exceeds every expectation. Um, it was very westernized. You know, they, they drive on the wrong side of the road kind of thing was the only awkward part about it. But the food was great. Uh, the people were even better. The craziest thing to me was is in, in, in America, playing in professional baseball, you're playing every day, maybe with one day off a week. But we go out there and literally played four games in two days on Saturday and Sunday, with, which were both doubleheaders on back-to-back days. And then you had to take Monday through Friday off because there were only four Americans on every Australian team. So that meant that the rest of our team was filled up with guys who were working nine-to-five jobs Monday through Friday and only got the weekends off to play. And that was probably the most interesting thing. But we got to travel. I got to go to Perth, Brisbane, the Gold Coast, Sydney. I mean, it was an amazing time. and absolutely loved every minute of it. So with, with guys having to have day jobs, essentially most of the team, what was the quality of play? What was it like? You know, in term, what would you equate if you said college, Division One college ball? You equate to Double A. What would you equate the level of ball on that with so many basically semi-pro players? Um, I, it was right around high A ball, maybe a, maybe a lower Double A league, but it was pretty good competition. And it was at a time when uh, Dave Nielsen, Graham Lloyd were in the you know prominent figures in the major leagues for the Milwaukee Brewers and New York Yankees. So there was some pretty good talent coming out of uh, the country of Australia. But uh, like you said, not being able to play on a daily basis and kind of having to push games back for the weekends didn't really lend itself to some you know, incredibly high-quality teams. But uh, we went out there, battled, had a great time. You, know, you create good friendships, and it's, all, you know, it's more about the experiences of going out there and being able to be uh, you know, on foreign soil, hang out with uh, guys who were working 9 to 5, and you see the, you know, the, the you know, that gleam in, their, gleam in their eyes when they would talk to you about going back and, you know, playing professional baseball in the States. So it was kind of fun to actually interact with those guys and understand that uh, they, they were chasing the same dream we were, even though they were a little bit further back behind us because of the access we had in the States. So uh, aside from maybe developing a, a love of Fosters, what did you do Monday through Friday <laughs> when you weren't playing games? Well, I learned quickly that Foster's is good, but Victoria <laughs> Bitter was better. Oh, all right. nice. and, yeah, I learned something, <laughs> right? Victoria and, Bitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, do that because, it, it, yeah, we <laughs> called it VB. And the reason I learned about it is because me and my roommate, Bob Henley, we hit, uh, you know, we had a couple of games where we hit two home runs in a game, and we woke up the next day to cases of Victoria Bitter outside our hotel uh, room. That was kind of like our fight money, which was kind of interesting. <clears throat> so they have the same thing. Um, Eric Hillman told us when he played in Japan, you'd find fight yep. money on your stool. So they do the same thing over there as well. Interesting. So I'm curious about baseball in Australia. We see baseball here in America. There's not quite as much emotion shown, at least at the Little League level. In Latin America, it's very different. What was baseball like for the native Australians necessarily on the field? Were you allowed to show a lot of emotion? Like, what, what made the game a little bit different there than what we would find here in the States? 
Yeah, the personality was very outgoing, and it was kind of funny to me to watch the way they interacted with us, which was very professional and uh, very businesslike. And when we faced Americans, you know, we played the game the way we do. We had a little bit of passion. We, you know, bat flipping hadn't really come into uh, a reality yet, where you try and uh, you know show one guy up or have a little flair to it. But when the Australian guys were facing Australian pitchers, or the pitchers were facing Australian hitters. That it stepped up a little bit, and you could see that there was a little more incentive on those guys. If they did something good, they were going to let the other team know it. And uh, so that was a lot of fun to watch. But at the same time, the one thing that really was different about Australian baseball is that they played on rugby fields. So you would play either a short center field and a mega deep left and right field, or you play a short right field and a crazy deep left field. And uh, so that was kind of entertaining in itself, trying to figure out what dimensions you're going to play with on a day-to-day basis. Very cool. So you make the climb up the major league ladder in the Expos system where Terry Kennedy, Gomer Hodge, Rick Sofield, Pat Kelly were some of your managers, Rondell White and Vlad Guerrero, some of your teammates. You, you mentioned how Coach Milano had an impact you know, on you know making you a switch hitter. Which coach, manager, or player in the Expos farm system had the greatest impact on getting you to the majors? Man, that is a good question. Um, you know, I played – my first manager was Terry Kennedy, and the interesting thing about Terry Kennedy was is that he was a San Francisco Giant when I was growing up in L.A., and with the obvious rivalry between the Giants and Dodgers in, in the California state, you know, I got to know Terry Kennedy pretty good just from watching him on TV. And then to show up my first big, you know, my first minor league game and have a big league manager like that, uh, you know, putting my name in the lineup was pretty cool. And he uh, he had a lot of great things to say about the game. He loved the game of baseball. And I asked him several times, like, what are you doing this for? You know, A-ball is not exactly a place where you'd expect the next big league to be, but he wanted to be around the game. He wanted to get his hands on young talent and be able to nurture them and help them understand how tough a regular season is and that they can do it and they can get to the next level and continue to move on. But when I got to AAA, Jeff Cox was my manager, who eventually became a third-base coach for the Marlins, Chicago White Sox for a while. But uh, he was probably a very – he was a very – he was an interesting guy to say the least, but he was a very stabilizing force and probably gave me the best piece of advice I ever got in my life, which was – you've got more time than you think because a lot of times the game of baseball can speed up a little bit. I know it's hard to believe when you're watching the game, but it speeds up a little bit. And it's actually something I've taken from the field to life to where I can kind of, you know, not let panic set in and kind of settle in, realize the situation, kind of evaluate and still have plenty of time to make the player make an appropriate decision. You have a connection via your Expo days to some of the Mets' current staff. As uh, Mets bench coach Hensley Mullins was a teammate of yours in the minors, your first manager in the majors was Felipe Alou, who was the current Met manager Luis Rojas's dad. What can you tell us about Hensley, and was Luis around the team much as a young adult when you were with the Expos, and what do you remember about him if he was around? Uh, to be honest, I don't remember Luisa that much at all. Everything I've, I've heard is you know through, through word of mouth or through an article or you know, watching on TV and just, you know, absorbing some of the information that way. Everything I've heard is great. If he's anything like his father or, you know, any of the Alou's for that matter, if he's anything like them, he's going to do a great job for the New York Mets because there is a certain, there's a certain passion and a certain understanding of the game that I think is within that, that, that DNA that the Alou's have because, 
you know, I've played against Moises Alou a great deal, and I've gotten to know him a little bit just as an opposing player and a phenomenal human being. Felipe Alou, I give him a lot of credit for my career, you know, allowing it to blossom the way it did because, you know, I wasn't the smaller Latin, more typical shortstop when I came up. I was a gigantic human being at six foot three, and he allowed me the opportunity to play some shortstop. I, I wasn't as quick as the Orlando Cabreras who was there before me, and he let me go out there and play and learn. And he continued no matter if I went over four, he would he would come in and he go. Uh, you know, it's a rougher day, but I'm going to put you back out there. You got to, you know, he kind of told me, you got to figure this thing out. He allowed me the time to go do that, which was great. So I applaud him on that. But uh, it's a great, it's a great legacy that they're continuing. And I'm actually very appreciative that Major League Baseball and the New York Mets have given Luis Rojas an opportunity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him. He was actually, I guess I've been around the team and saw him when he was that quality control yeah, guy, and I, I just love the way he interacted, and I was always pushing for him. I'm, I'm, you know, the circumstances that led to the job, but at least he, he finally got it. We got two more questions for you about your playing career before we get on, and and honestly, when I had texted you a long time ago, it was about having you on about your playing career. What's gone on afterwards is is different, so we're, we're going to get to that. So um, you make your major league debut um, August ninth, nineteen ninety nine, against the Padres. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about that day, and how special was it? Um, I remember everything. It's uh, you know that dream realized is something you'll never forget. And you know it may have been in Montreal in front of seven thousand fans, but it could have been eighty five thousand fans for all I knew. As excited as I was, and you know another credit to Felipe Alou. I got called up on August eighth, and they put me in the lineup August ninth. So you know he didn't waste any time and just said you're going to get out there and play shortstop for the Expos. And one of the things I remember vividly is my first at bat against Matt Clement. He struck me out on a breaking ball, and I remember walking back to the dugout with a big old grin on my face going, man, I am now, like, officially on baseball reference. I have a stat in the major leagues, and nobody's going to take that away from me. And then I proceeded to go two for four. I played, you know, I was across the diamond from Tony Gwynn, who two two or three days earlier got his 3,000th hit. So I was just a couple of days away from history, and it, I really remember, you know, trying not to be a fan in the moment and watching Tony Gwynn hit, you know, and watching what the Padres were doing and then focusing on my game. But uh, it was truly one of the greatest things uh, that happened in my baseball career is being able to get called up and actually produce and contribute to a win. And uh, it, it was I, – I, I, Puts a smile on my face every time I talk about it. <laughs> so we mentioned in the intro that pinch hit home run in the 14th inning of Game 3 of the World Series. Was that hit and then the culmination eventually winning the World Series the highlight of your playing career? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I love the fact that, you know, you talk to, you know, guys like Mike Trout and some of these all-stars and these, you know, the, these super phenom talented stars that even with the millions of dollars they have, even with the MVP trophies, that these guys want to have that legacy of being a World Series champion. And I was fortunate enough to be in a situation with a ball club. You know, I got traded at the deadline that year. It was it was a crazy year. I went from a first-place team in the Padres to a first-place team in the Chicago White Sox. And for 21 days in the playoffs, I just sat there cheering on our guys until I had that one magic moment in Game 3 of the World Series where I actually had an opportunity to have an impact. And uh, fortunately, the pitcher missed his pitch by a good, or missed his spot by a good foot and a half. 
and I, I you know, I hit a laser out of uh, Minute Maid Park, and uh, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. But man, yeah, that's one of the definitely the highlight of my career was being able to hit a home run, contribute, but then to eventually put that ring on with those guys in '05. So before we get to the elephant in the room, which is the the Astros <laughs> and such. One more personal question about you. 2005 was an interesting year for you also, not just because of the home run, but for a family situation. Yep. So you ended up becoming the father first. You had a daughter, then the father of triplets in addition, and now they are volleyball players. So what's it been like to watch your daughters develop as athletes, but in volleyball, a sport that you're not necessarily that familiar with? Yeah, 05 was an outstanding year. Uh, my daughters were born, and... Uh, Going to win the world, win the World Series. It's been fantastic, and it's it's been kind of fun to watch them grow because you know we tried the softball, the soccer, and all the other sports, but for whatever reason, all four of them kind of gravitated towards the uh, volleyball sport, which is great because living in Houston, you know, controlled environments are a very nice thing to have when it's 115 degrees outside <laughs> with humidity. And but it's also beautiful in the sense that they don't have to. I don't know if there is, you know, a shadow being cast by having a major league dad, but they've done a very good job of creating their own niche inside a sport that I didn't. I'm not really uh, familiar with. I'm trying to learn every year, but I think it's created a great environment for me to be a fan. Number one, which of course I'm always going to be a fan of my kids, but at the same time, it opens up an avenue of communication with me where I can go. You know, why are, why are you rotating? Why did you go to that position? What does it mean when that set goes up? And, you know, so it, it allows them to teach me a little bit about the game, and it makes it that much more entertaining for me because it becomes interactive with me not only watching the game, and maybe it takes away the critique of the game, but I get to be a fan and try and understand what they're going through when they're on the court. But ultimately, I'm just a dad having a great time watching my girls succeed. So cool. All right. So the Astros sign-stealing sign scandal has been the dominant story in baseball throughout the offseason. The, the collateral damage results in three managers losing their job over it. Um, though it didn't come as a, a revelation to many throughout the game, a scout from another team told the Washington Post it was a big open secret, really big, throughout baseball, throughout the scouting community for several years, not just starting in 2017, I would say probably 2016, maybe earlier through 2019. Things were going on that were blatantly against the rules. That's a scout who didn't give his name, but it was quoted in the Washington Post, um, uh, the Washington Post? Hold on. Yeah. Let me just want to make sure I get the source right. Yes, Washington Post. Um, so you've been around the team for seven years. You've been the color analyst for the period that the sign stealing allegedly happened. Um, was it something that you were even remotely aware of covering the team? Absolutely not. And I know that that sounds crazy in the sense that, yes, I am an Astro employee. Yes, I travel with the team. But once the game starts, I am, you know, 300 feet off the ground watching a baseball game and talking about what I see on the field. That being said, I don't think there's, you know, I don't know if there's been enough insight into the inner workings of the front office of the Houston Astros because we did have access to Jeff Lunau and some of the other guys that are within the organization. But knowing that, I know for a fact that I've asked Jeff for. I, you know, I didn't know it at the time because I was just starting my job, but I asked for information about shifts and literally said, hey, do you have any information on shifts that can explain or help me explain to the crowd at home what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it? And, I did, and it, he was very polite, and he just said, you know what, that is our information that we'd like to keep to ourselves. He goes, but he, you know, he said, this, you, you can use this terminology, 
you can use this or that. And he pointed me to fan graphs. He pointed me to a couple other websites that kind of did a very good job of explaining shifts. So I wasn't necessarily given information within the organization. Now, keep in mind, I am an Astro employee. My job is to make the Astros look good on the field and explain what they're doing. And somebody internally said, no, we're not going to give you that information. So I wasn't privy to that information. And having been a player, I know that there's tipping. I know that there is, uh, when you're at second base, you're trying to decode what's going on as far as sequences. Um, I know I'm watching the third base coach for the other team to figure out if I can pick up when they're bunting or hitting or running, stealing. I'm watching their pitching coach to see if he's giving any signs that I can pick up on. But I had no idea that it was going to the extent it was. I'm pretty much finding out like you are and a lot of fans of baseball are finding out that there's a lot of these things that kind of got stirred up and it definitely got taken way too far. And obviously they're paying the consequence for it. But I had no idea. And I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking about asking the question, to be honest with you, because I didn't know. The other part of the question, part of this came out, not just what they were doing, because they were a hated team among baseball, that for whatever reason they were renegades, people didn't like them. Did you get any sense of that from either the Astros knowing this as they went about their business or from talking to other broadcasters being around other teams that they were such a hated team in Major League Baseball? No, not to that extent to being hated. I mean, everybody, you know, it's like saying, oh, I hate the Yankees. Why do you hate the Yankees? Because the Yankees are good. Right, yeah. You, you know, <laughs> you Agreed, always hated right. the team that was better than you. When I was in San Diego, we hated the Dodgers because the Dodgers were, we were competing with them for first place. So it's kind of hard, you know, you have to really define the word hate. But I don't, I never saw it as, the, as, as hate. But there was, you know, if we're being totally honest, there was an, an air of arrogance and we are better than you because we've, we've figured out how to make analytics work because they drafted so well because they developed so well, because they've handled contracts so well. So they, they kind of developed that attitude that they are above everybody else. And I think that's where that hate mentality of other teams kind of came in. Whereas, if you know, from where I sit, it was a little bit of arrogance saying, hey, we figured it out because we've got so many talented guys, and then the guys would go out there and perform. And it made a, probably made it an even, even tougher relationship for uh, GMs or scouts around the league. Listen, you know, being a Met fan and, and no team was hated around baseball more than that, you know, 86 Met team and the cockiness and fighting in every game. I mean, and but here in New York, we love them. So so that begs the yep. question, you know, it calls into question around Major League Baseball, their accomplishments in the recent years, 100 plus victories in each of the last three seasons, World Series in 2017, American League pen in a season ago. As a former player who watched this team day in and day out, hearing this, like, we all respect a player, like, up until now, okay, yeah. and we all, I mean, when you said hated, like, I liked Jose Altuve, you know, small little guy, he reminded mm-hmm. me of, like, Wally Backman from the 86, you know, getting the most out of his body, and and now, it, like it. it really, now, you take a step back, and, and you look at it, and it in, in my eyes, it diminishes what they accomplished. In Houston, you know, we're, we're not there. What do you think Astro Nation is, is thinking about their team now? Well, you know that, you know, fanat- fans are fanatics, sometimes irrational. And I respect the fact that you are willing to say that out loud. You know, a lot of people are just, you know, completely blown off. But at the same time, you do have to appreciate what he's done with his stature. Right. And I think that Jose Altuve is one of the harder workers in all of baseball, having been around that side of, of the Astros. But 
full disclosure, you know, yeah, I've got a podcast we recorded today, and I, I even said at the end of it, you know, I try and be as open as I can. You have every fan in baseball has every right to be skeptical of what's going to happen moving forward, and it's not until a Jose Altuve or an Alex Bregman or a Carlos Correa or you know these guys go out and put up similar numbers before you go, okay, maybe these guys are as good as advertised, and the whole sign stealing issue was just something that got out of control because these guys have a lot of work to do to take that label that you're talking about off of them. But at the same time, you know, you can't feel sorry for them because they put that on themselves. Right. And it calls into question. You take a look at some of the splits and you see the home and away splits. It's like, and, and it could just be a coincidence. And it's like, Oh, and then like here in New York, we have JD Davis and you take a look at, you know, what the Mets thought they were going to get because of maybe he was part of this. But then he comes here and he puts up better numbers. So it's really hard. You know, it's the same thing with the steroid era. It's like, did he, like Mike mm-hmm. Piazza was suspected, but there was no proof. But then it still tarnishes his legacy. It is, it's a mess. But, but do you think they have a sense, though, especially having heard press conference this week, uh. what, what's <laughs> facing them? Yeah. As they, not not, yeah. not, not, not what, what they have to prove, what they're going to see every time they come into a town for the first time this year. Do you think they fully understand what that's all, all going to be about? Yeah, I don't know how you can quantify that or even get prepared for it because you are exactly right. I think what we're seeing on Twitter and social media is ob- – I'm hoping it's exaggerated because everybody is – you know, everybody's a keyboard warrior, so to speak, on, on social media. Is it going to be different when they get into stadiums? But I know for a fact that it, it's going to be very similar. I hope that it stays with the verbal assaults, you know, to be expected. But these guys are going to be in for some serious, uh, serious challenges moving forward. And I think it's even going to be challenging for us on broadcast because – you, you know as well as I do, being in the, in the broadcast business, whether it be radio or TV, there's field mics. They're, they're, those microphones pick up a lot of energy as they come through the microphones. And we're obviously sitting in, this, in the booth, and we can feel the, the, you know, the rise in tension if there is any in a game. And I have a feeling that that tension, when they roll into a city or a ballpark, is going to be immediate. And I'm really curious, just like you, you all are, how are they going to handle it? Because as an opposing player coming into a stadium, let's say New York or Shea, I remember Shea, uh, uh, you know, I have very fond memories of Shea Stadium having been an expo and coming up and playing in the National League East, especially in the early 2000s when the Mets were so good. And, the, you know, the, the, the energy that comes out of that ballpark when you walked out of that tunnel you know, walking over Jimmy Hoffer, whoever was underneath that tunnel <laughs> under there, and and you come out the top. I mean, all of a sudden, you knew you were in for a dogfight. Not just because the Mets were so good, but because those fans were absolutely fervent and they wanted to, you know, will their, you know, their presence upon the opposing team. And it's just going to be that much exaggerated now that you actually have a true villain in Major League Baseball. It's going to be very interesting. And it also doesn't help the matter that two of the team, well, 
two of the teams that feel they got ripped off the most are two <laughs> of the biggest markets in L.A. and New York. Yeah. In L.A., the fan base is a little more mellow, but the, the Bronx is oh, unforgiving. But they, they're not playing as mellow. I mean, they are not. Out, but they, 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 This is very un-L.A-like. But, the way but LA, they're not mellow yeah, about this. L.A. is True. not, you know, to, to, to borrow a word from Bobby Bonilla, I'll show you the Bronx, okay? Yeah. So, yeah, I think the Bronx will be a little less forgiving. Liam, you had a question? Yeah, uh, specifically about what Cody Bellinger said, it's so rare that we hear an active player really in any sport speak so candidly about um, a scandal this large in their sport. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were on what Cody Bellinger said against the Astros and then to, to start to get into what uh, Car- how Correa responded. And then with Trevor Bauer said. today also. And Trevor Bauer as off. well. But, I mean, you're talking about the reigning National League MVP right. going out and saying the things he said about the Astros. I'm curious to hear what you thought of it. I am all for guys saying what they want to say. And I know that this is a unique situation that we are in right now where, you know, I, I understand Cody's bitterness. I mean, he, I mean, it's, I don't know what, you know, it's, it's similar to, you know, the Buffalo bills in the NFL where they got so many chances at the championship and never won it. And I kind of feel like that's where Cody Bellinger and maybe some of the Dodgers are at is where they're, we tried so hard to win a world series championship. We couldn't, and we thought we lost it you know, in the sense of fair and square, whatever that may be, and they didn't, and now they found an outlet. Now they picked off a scab that, oh, my gosh, maybe we got cheated out of something, and he snapped. And I've got no problem with Cody saying that. My, my problem with the – and I have no – you know, we'll get to Correa. I'm sorry. So my problem is being an ex-player and understanding how strong the Major League Baseball Players Association is – that's where I have the issue. I cannot believe that this is out in the public where these guys are actually calling each other out. It's amazing to me because there is such a solidarity in that fraternity of baseball players where if you did have a problem, you would go to the guy or you would find a way to get in touch with this guy. But because this is a team thing, I think that's why you're starting to hear some of these, some of these quotes. But I also feel that this day and age of social media – you feel the the need to say these things out loud, but uh, I don't feel that it it helps the cause by voicing your opinion opinion as strongly and as bold as, as vulgarly. I don't even know if that's a word as these guys are. So then, do you view Mike Fires as a hero or a rat? As a I player? don't see I don't I don't see him as either. You know, it, it's a it's an interesting situation, and it kind of goes back to Major League Baseball, which is a whole other can of worms we could spend another 45 minutes talking about, because I played in the PED era, and, you know, Dud Selig, the, the commissioner back then, I said Dud, and he overlooked the PEDs because of the strike in 1994, and he saw the steroid era bring people back to the seats, and it became monetary. And all of a sudden, now we're like, oh, the steroid era, oh, we got to stop steroids, you know, whereas they were okay with it when it was paying the bills. But now that the sport is healthy, we want to get rid of that stain. And we're kind of in the same situation where Major League Baseball allowed technology into the, you know, to creep closer from the, the clubhouse to the, to the tunnels, to behind the dugouts, and eventually it found its way into the dugout. And it really feels like Major League Baseball is behind the curve on this situation. So, you know, if, if there's a lot of people to blame, but Major League Baseball could have done a better job of limiting the opportunity for, for teams to go out there and find this uh, avenue of sign stealing. 
So uh, that's an interesting part, too, about the fraternity that you bring up. And I find it so interesting that so many players are talking because you would think that maybe they were, you know, trying to hide something down further down the line or, or, you know, just hedge their bet that the thing wouldn't come out further down the line. So do you think that this was more of a league-wide thing or do you think it was specific to just the Astros? It just depends to what extent. I, You know, if you say league-wide in the sense that everybody had a camera and a monitor behind the dugout, I don't think that was a league-wide thing. I would like to think that there were some organizations that actually took to heart what Rob, what Rob Manfred said after the Yankees and Red Sox had their uh, incident in trying to introduce technology to the dugout. And the Astros, maybe in some of that arrogance we talked about a little bit earlier, maybe said, oh, we're, we're going to be fine. We can do this. We're going to take it to the next level, and we'll be fine. And so, it, it, man, it's just ugly, but I don't think it was league-wide. Now, that being said, I know darn well, like I spoke earlier, that as a player in the organic environment of on-field competition, you are trying to find every advantage. And if the other team is dumb enough to to broadcast their, pardon the pun, broadcast their signs to the other team and not make the adjustment, I'm going to abuse that. And I know a lot of teams do that around the league even to this day. Hey, listen, we played, my son played travel ball. I coached him for nine years. And one of the things were the, 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 the players that weren't in the lineup, you know, your job is when you're sitting on the bench, you watch the third base coach and try to figure out what their hit and run sign and what their steal sign is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not technology, but that's part of baseball. It's just, you're right, this went one step over the line, obviously. But it's interesting because Carlos Beltran, who was hired by the Mets, got fired in the aftermath of the investigation, is alleged to be the mastermind of the sign stealing based on an article in The Athletic. Uh, Beltran initially denied any knowledge of the Astros' sign stealing. The story in The Athletic states that catcher Brian McCann asked him to stop. Um, two members of the 2017 Astros told The Athletic that Beltran basically steamrolled everybody. Um, at that point, he was one of the most accomplished individuals on the roster, someone who younger players and even A.J. Hinch were basically reluctant to cross. Seeing that dynamic of the play of the clubhouse close up, do you see that as being accurate? Because a lot of the guys you know, walked that back after the press conference when they went in the locker room and said that he was the most respected guy and they learned so much and he was the most uh, stand-up guy. So it, it really mixed messages are being sent out there about Carlos at this point. Yeah, and I have a tough time with this one because I do respect Carlos Beltran and I still do. And I have a hard time hearing that story about Carlos. And it's not in the sense that – it's in the sense that I've been in clubhouses where I was the rookie, I was the young guy, I was around veteran talent. And, you know, these are grown men inside these clubhouses. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody who felt intimidated inside the Astros clubhouse to say this about Carlos. But having been around Carlos and know enough people who know Carlos – I have a hard time seeing him be the quote-unquote godfather that says, you're going you're gonna to steal sides, we're going to bang the trash can, do it now kind of thing. You know. And that being said, grown men can make their own decisions. If you feel uncomfortable in a situation, walk away. I mean, you don't even have to say, hey, Carlos, I think this is a bad idea. You can just avoid the situation and be like, I'm not going to be a guy that's going to be around this. You know, there's plenty of other options. Now, the other part, going back to Major League Baseball and talking about the Carlos Beltran who got fired from his job before he could even start it, the way that I read Rob Manfred's report about the sign stealing on the Houston Astros, it stated that it was a leadership problem. 
And that, to me, meant administrative and coaching staff. So, okay, Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch get named. They get suspended. Alex Cora gets named. He's the bench coach. And the next line says, players have immunity. Why was Carlos Beltran's name even in the report if he was a player at the time? I I still, to this day, have a very hard time understanding how they justify putting Carlos Beltran's name out there like that. And if Carlos' name is covered up like every single other player on that roster, maybe we don't get to the point where these articles are coming out because maybe they're fabricated. Who knows? But I have a very hard time with Carlos Beltran being fired because he got named as a player when the players were to be unnamed. Yeah, interesting. And you know what? It's there's so many tentacles to this. I think the reason why these players had immunity has to also do, and you mentioned it, the Major League Baseball Players Association, one of the strongest associations of all professional sports. If Manford handed down suspensions to players, I'm sure there would have been appeals, and it would have been even a bigger mess. And, and you're right, you know, Beltran did the collateral damage, but he would not have been able to withstand, you know, the the scrutiny here in New York. Jeff, I really appreciate the extended time you gave us tonight. Um, like I said, originally we were having you on about your career, and this propped up, so this was great timing. Um, and when it first came up, you were flying, and you were nice enough to reschedule. So we really appreciate it, and uh, good luck in enjoying the volleyball. And you know, it's going to be a challenging year for you as well, I'm sure. Um, so good luck, and uh, hope to see you when um, you guys are in New York. I appreciate it. I look forward to it. Hopefully I do see all of you at the ballpark. If you do get to the ballpark, make sure you say hi. And thank you for doing such a thorough – this was a fun interview, and I appreciate the research you did and the questions you asked. You did a great job. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Jeff Blum, color announcer, color announcer for the Houston Astros.